Hello, I'm Regina Botras and welcome backstage where we talk with theatre makers from actors, directors, writers, theatre heads and beyond about their life in the theatre and how they got to be where they are now. And my guest this evening is James Winter. He is co-founder and director of Brand X, making affordable spaces for artists and has a program of testing ground grants for new works that you can show in a theatre space. There's a whole lot going on there with Brand X. We'll dig into that. He actually studied as an actor and performed for years and as a director he worked for the State Opera as well as State Theatre Company of South Australia. He's worked for Restless Dance Company, Urban Myth Theatre of Youth, Shopfront, Asheville Youth Theatre, the studio of the Sydney Opera House, so many, and he's worked in community and cultural engagements on projects with communities with disability, uh, street dependent, same-sex attracted, gender non-forming, drug dependent sex workers, remote Indigenous communities, so many community involvements there. And he's here to talk with me about his life in the theatre, how he got to be where he is and how things are going now, which is um, affecting all of us. Welcome, James Winter. Thanks for having me, Regina. Thanks for coming on. You must be taking a hit with this current situation. I want to get into that, but before we do talk about Brand X and the great things and opportunities that are available, can you tell me how, where you hail from? Was it a creative household? What was it like as a child for you? I I was raised in an army family, so there couldn't (gasps) be anything more further removed than creativity than living in army barracks. However, I used to put on shows in our basement and so (laughs) I'd invite all the local army kids over and we'd do like lip-syncing shows to, you know, children's record. I don't know, it was very weird. But my grandfather was a tap dancer in the vaudeville stages in South Australia. So vaudeville, of course, was like a franchise that ran right across Australia for cabaret. I think there were three venues here in Sydney. But, yeah, as a child, he was this tap dancing little kid. So I kind of presume that, yeah, I got his DNA and attracted to the stage and entertaining and creating artworks for people to, to think about. I can't help but ask, what kind of records were you lip syncing to? Do you remember? Do you really want to know? I do, I do. No. Uh, well, you see, I was also raised in like a fundamentalist Christian uh, uh, background. So oh. there were these records that were kind of evangelical um, children's records but I really loved the stories because they were like fantasy but ultimately they were, they were preaching. I also lived in Papua New Guinea so we didn't have any television. We had to make our own fun and so these were the records that you know we had access to. I mean I was also listening to War of the Worlds and ABBA and you know that kind of stuff but you know you can't really do children's shows to War <laughs> of the Worlds. <laughs> So we did things really strange. I don't know. I actually um, just recently found one of the records in a, you know, secondhand record store and so I've actually purchased one of them. Oh, fantastic. Frightened to to put on the record player because I don't know what it will trigger. (laughs) I just, wow, Papua New Guinea. So I actually was looking up Papua New Guinea last night because it's only, I mean, they were talking about COVID, but only 4Ks or something away from Australia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, it's it's pretty much our, cl- of course, it's our closest neighbour. Mm. But, of course, it's a huge landmass and 
huge population who are ultimately, you know, um, kind of jungle dwelling communities with many different languages, many different tribes. Uh, also quite a lot of hostility between those tribes too. Mm. So it's actually a very fascinating country that I would bend over backwards to revisit as an adult. But unfortunately, you know, as we all know, the, the temperature there is still quite volatile. So it's a dangerous, dangerous country to, to experience as a tourist. Mm. Um, but one day I would love to go back there. Mm. My heart most definitely is with PNG. How long were you there and what, how old were you? I was eight and we were only there for two years. So okay. in the army, you're posted every two years. So I remember um, as a family, we sat down and talked about two options for for posting. And one was Canberra and one was Lay in Papua New Guinea. Mm. And I remember uh, us as a family deciding to go to Papua New Guinea. And it was the best decision we could have made because to be raised in a developing country is life-changing and the people of Papua New Guinea are, are beautiful, beautiful communities of people and it's a very troubled place but it's an incredible gift as an eight-year-old to watch the world uh, develop in front of you in that context. Eye-opening. Yeah. Incredible. So does that mean you did you moved around quite a bit if it's every two years? Well, my parents divorced after Papua New Guinea so then we resided in Adelaide mm-hmm. and I stayed in Adelaide up until moving to Sydney uh, in 2002 uh, but yeah so we um, prior to that every two years we moved around so it's it's wow. it, it's a very difficult life for children because you're uprooted from your friends every two years yeah and um, I can still remember those first days at school where you're standing at the top of the mm. class and the teacher's going <laughs> we have a new student and everyone looks at you <laughs> like you're a freak and all that kind of stuff. But every army child um, experiences the same thing. So it's fun to find other adults um, who grew up in a similar situation <laughs> to have those conversations <laughs> about the difficulty of finding friendships when you're in that situation. Yes, I, I moved around as a lot. I went to four different high schools. And I didn't wasn't an army child, but it does teach you something about making friends. <laughs> like you have to walk in and... I don't know, like find your tribe all over again. And relentlessly too. Mm. So it's quite a good thing. I remember getting notification, well, the family getting notification of the next posting and stuff and that being very traumatic. Mm. And army life is most definitely a difficult life for everybody involved, particularly the adults, but the children. Mm. Yeah, uh, I guess that's the story that a lot of people don't really know is that kind of upheaval. Mm, Indeed. So from lip syncing to acting, it seems like a natural progression. <laughs> what, where, where you stud- did you study in Adelaide, I assume? Yeah, uh, well, I was lucky enough to go to a performing arts high school. Mm. And so from there, I you know, spent all my time in the drama department. So then I got into the Centre for Performing Arts, which was a TAFE college in the centre of the city in Adelaide, just next, used to be just next to the central markets Mm -hmm. and that was three years full-time of um, pretty much just doing show after show after show after show so after I graduated I had already um, you know been involved in around about 30 productions through that institution and it just gave me just uh, the tools to be able to like self-create essentially Mm. and 
from then I was really hungry to create work and I went straight into directing actually I was employed as an actor and I loved it but it soon became really really obvious to me that for me to be fulfilled artistically I needed to create the work and so yeah that's how Brandex started actually it was called Brandex Theatre Company mm-hmm. it premiered at the 1993 Adelaide Fringe Festival oh, wow. and we did a show in my living room it was Sam Shepard's um, True West oh I love it and yeah and so this was all before public liability and we were <laughs> able to cram you know 20 people in each session into my living room and then the performance happened around us and we won an award for it and it just um, commenced this journey for me of being able to uh, create work in a highly subsidised environment at that time in the early 90s in Adelaide where we had uh, the South Australian Youth Arts Board, which was like a third tier of funding, mm. which would just give you micro grants that um, started you off in the funding cycle, mm. essentially. And by the time I left Adelaide, I'd um, completed uh, 50 works, uh, all of which were funded. Um, wow. to, uh, m- majority of those were fully paid, fully subsidised, and so had... Uh, a tremendous initiation into the arts at, in Adelaide. It's it's incredible to hear that actually, and comparatively to Sydney. I mean, Sydney's now kind of, with the help of you in particular, but you know, fringe festivals. You know, Adelaide is known for its fringe festival, and I didn't realise there was such an opportunity at the time. Has there been that kind of opportunity growing here in Sydney, would you say? No. um, I've always been quite alarmed at the environment that artists have to survive here. Um, Mm. And I guess that's also a massive motivation for the work at Brand X is Mm. that kind of understanding that it's very cutthroat and it's a competition and uh, and that's unnecessary and... Mm. Uh, because of that, we're dealing with um, artists that have very little um, vocation experience in creating work. So it's almost like I couldn't imagine what it would be like to not have practice, to not actually be in a rehearsal room, to not be managing a creative staff of 20 for a production and, you know, putting shows on after show after show after show. Mm. just to build your voice and to understand how best to um, to harness that voice. And that can only happen when you're actually doing it. You've worked extensively, as I said in my intro, with community cultural engagement and how valuable that is. Can you talk about some of the experiences in the, and um, what it actually giving a, a, a voice, I suppose, to these communities, how you've seen that, I don't know, thrive as a consequence? Yeah, look, community cultural development was my my main focus only because the arts can be very entitled and mm. privileged mm. Uh, on many different kind of aspects. And so there's, a, there's just a sense of asking why are we doing this when we're kind of playing to the same people, those people can afford it, those, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's a... It's a moment where you suddenly go, This there needs to be more than this. Mm. And so community cultural development just happened naturally in my uh, growing as a theatre director where I was just offered some opportunities to work with street kids on, you know, on small gigs. 
mm-hmm. and then those experiences became very enriching for me and also for the participants and then you know you start to kind of see change and you kind of start to see light bulbs switch on for people. Then, you know, giving them a voice to tell their stories and then watching an audience be quite rocked by the information that they're receiving. It was just a real understanding that this is actually what it's about. Even though it's extremely challenging situations, you're dealing with a lot of trauma, you're dealing with a lot of violence, particularly working in juvenile justice and street dependence and also dual diagnosis. You're dealing with people who have been denied basic human rights to the point that they have become something else. And by giving them an opportunity to express themselves for the first time sometimes um, is a truly scary offer. I remember this happens time and time again. I used to meet young, particularly women who had never spoken. And these are like 13, 14, 15 year olds who'd stopped speaking and to give them an ability to be able to find that actual physical voice. Yeah, it's really uh, life changing. I actually had to stop this practice probably around about four years ago. So it has it's sustained my career for about 25 years and I've worked with um, significant groups of people, but there's a time also where you become quite fatigued by the uh, revolving door right. and had to stop it because I just did not, I kept seeing the same people come through the door each time, even though they were completely different people, mm. they were the same trauma. And it was just that overwhelming sense of, yes, you're doing it because it does make change, but the population of um, hurt and damaged people in our society is overwhelming. And for my own mental health, I needed to step back and go, I need some time out from constantly dealing with the stuff that will come up in the rehearsal room it's yeah it's dealing with so much trauma and how do you create a a safe space for them i've always come from the place that art comes from play Mm -hmm. it's always comes from joy it always comes from silly stupid things and so in actual fact i realized that a major part of my role in ccd was actually to facilitate guided play uh-huh. and you're dealing with young people teenagers who are actually being denied play for their mm-hmm. entire life the guided play actually allows them to like just drop all the guards and then of course as artists we understand that as soon as we don't have consciousness that's when we create stuff a, a major mm-hmm. part of the process is actually to get them to stop thinking and yeah. just to react to react to react And it's from there, noting all that stuff that comes out of there, that's where you start to get the basic structure for what a show might be. And then what I would always do would would create two distinct different cultures. One was the play and then Mm -hmm. we'd stop that and then we'd go into me pitching back what I'd learned from them and what I've found as generic themes that were happening in the improvisations Mm -hmm. and for us then to hit the paper and for us to write a show 
Right. And then for us to play out a process that was as similar to the professional process as possible. Yes. So it wasn't about people sitting there and go, oh, the special, you know, street yeah. kids, aren't they great? Mm. It was actually about making a show that people went, oh, my God, wow, that was beautiful. Mm. And more than just like a cathartic experience for them. And, and also you said earlier, um, and particularly important, not just for them or... Uh, and, and giving them a voice, but also the audience to witness uh, other experiences. Back, you said in like 1993, Brand X started. How has it evolved since then? Yeah, it moved from a, 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 a theatre company or something that would produce, and then it moved into a service organisation. And it only did that because um, my... Um, friend and business and soon to be business partner Samantha Chester uh, we found a property in Chippendale Queen Street Studio which we eventually called Queen Street Studio but we needed a business entity to attach to it for us to be able to get the lease and right. so I just um, transferred Brand X from Adelaide where it was registered as an incorporated association and transferred it to Sydney so we had something a business entity and an ABN to be able to sign a lease so mm. it was not intentional at all for Brandex <laughs> to come over here right. uh, it was more just a necessity uh -huh. and then um, yeah just over time uh, it just became yeah a, an organization that primarily serviced um, artists with space but also programs which um, uh, invested in professional development, essentially. It's it's an incredibly important, uh, in, in, you know, fantastic opportunity because how do you do it otherwise if you want to create new work apart from doing it in front of a, a, few, a group of your friends? It's so important, isn't it, to 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 test work like that? Well, performing uh, performance doesn't exist unless there's an audience. So it's mm. the big quandary that... Um, Sydney faces is that, um, uh, yeah, the sector doesn't actually um, do its work unless it has an audience sitting in the dark watching it. Um, mm. And I, I, I think that's actually um, uh, to the detriment of Sydney artists is that because they're denied practice, they actually have, um, have to rebuild a new relationship with their audience and that's the most critical thing. So. I do feel that we are making impact because we're introducing audiences to fresh work. Um, mm. It just needs to happen in many more venues. There needs to be more critical mass. There needs, needs to be more people um, doing, you know, flying nun programs because um, the more times you perform in front of the stage, the more you know who you are as an artist. How do you do it? I guess it's easy to say, you know, there should be more, but how how do you exist? And especially, and then we'll, we'll talk about now, but how do you do it? Well, you know, I've always been um, a person that has tried to make um, uh, existence uh, independent, but it's the sad fact that arts actually has to survive with subsidy. There's no way in which yeah. you can actually... Um, um, yeah, do its work unless mm. there is some level of funding behind it because yeah. the risk is too great, the audience is too small, um, uh, it doesn't have the um, uh, 
private sector support. Yeah. Uh, the general public doesn't really care. So it really <laughs> needs government funding mm. and that's heartbreaking to realise that but, yeah. It's heartbreaking because there's not necessarily support from government. Yeah. Anyway. Um, mm. Interestingly enough, COVID last lockdown actually opened the floodgates to performing arts and also independent artists to have money in their pocket. It was actually mm. the first time in since uh, coming to Sydney that I've actually seen our constituents with cash in their pockets to be able to reinvest in their art. Um, and that was really tremendous and exciting because I've always kind of felt like uh, Sydney was um, right on the cusp of having some kind of renaissance of mm. um, independent work coming to the fore. Um, and then it was happening and you know people were doing shows and they were being subsidized and new venues were uh, opening up and non-traditional spaces were starting to open up and then you know um june 25 hit and we're back in our oh, houses so how are things going now with brand x uh it's stressful um mm. it's stressful like everyone's experiencing i think uh, it's so interesting. Lockdown actually means that you work harder than you ever worked when you're not in lockdown because you're struggling to uh, engage a very unengaged um, market. Um, you're trying to reschedule when people aren't mm. as attentive to communications anymore because, you know, mm. they're going through their own trauma or they're yeah. having to switch off because it's too overwhelming. Yeah. Um, the good thing is there's that last lockdown, we did lots and lots of fortification with the sure. idea of this potentially happening again. So we've got good reserves. We've got a lot of digital assets. We've got, we've been able to push things to the, uh, to uh, forward, which otherwise last year we hadn't actually created. So that's good. And then we've mm. got a really exciting opportunity opening up um, in the coming months, which is essentially our lifeline. So it's um, it's more about um, just dealing with the day-to-day -day emotions that we feel when we're facing a pandemic of such epic proportions mm. globally mm. and then trying to work out what your role will be in the new order yeah. after and what that landscape will actually be. And it's kind of interesting to listen to, you know, Commonwealth government, um, not only the government government, but also arts yes. and kind of get sniff the idea that, you know, everyone's preparing for a completely new landscape and it's not going to be what we are familiar with and then trying to work out okay so what do we do now mm. <laughs> um, so what are the what are the uh, digital assets that you might have and what is the lifeline is there something that can people can be involved with yeah look we've got a really beautiful program called artist to artist which came about because we realized that networks between artists were pretty much you know closed shops or non-existent mm. and that um, what was lacking was that whole community community no. 
Yeah. And skill exchange that, you know, that working on different shows, working with different people, learning skills of others through vocational exchange and that kind of stuff just didn't exist. So we created this program called Artist to Artist. We were able to get digitized money from Create New South Wales. And so we just did a hell of a lot of recordings, which mm-hmm. were all about artists just talking about their practice, some hacks and some, you know, ways in which you can get stuff for free, how you can kind of develop um, a multi-skilled approach to your practice. So, you know, you might be a theatre director, but you can, you know, work in CAD and you can work in SketchUp and you can kind of develop marketing strategies and you can kind of do all this kind of stuff. So we, you know, we created 12 works um, which are online at the moment. And so we basically have offered them as free to our artist pass subscribers and five dollars to everyone else and basically they're one hour shoots where it's you know kind of artists just talking about their discoveries and what they've done and how they use technology or equipment or tools to be able to better their practice or do their practice and i'm super proud of it i think it's absolutely a gorgeous um collection or library that almost um, has captured a moment in time for independent um, practice in Sydney. Um, But also right now, what we're watching is that, you know, as people are understanding that this lockdown is keep going, keep going, keep going. And once Mm. we get over that disappointment and stuff like that, starting to look at, well, what are you going to use this time for? Let's let's do some self-improvement, some professional development and engage with this program. So that's one of the digital assets. We've got a shop, which is called ProtoShop, which we've just, um, um, we're working with five artists who are developing new products that are about to go up. So that's gonna be cool. That's gonna happen at the end of the month. Some beautiful, beautiful, crazy stuff will hit those shelves. That looks wonderful. Yeah, yeah, I'm having. We've also been recording our flying nun shows for the last two years. So we've got a, a beautiful um, stable of um, live performance um, recorded. So, yeah, it's kind of cool, but it's, you know, it's not live. No. But you can still be engaged and you can engage yourself as well. Uh, James Winder, thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure. Thank you very much for your time. Well, that was James Winter, the artistic director of Flying Nun Theatre. He had to race off to go and read the latest submissions. So we look forward to that. But get online and have a look at what's going on there. You can get involved. You can watch old old live shows. You can engage in art with artists to artists. You can buy some art, and also you can find out. Join their uh, newsletter and get information when grants are open for submission it's a it's a great way to engage with the arts